the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. And today, kida, we will continue the study of the book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 9. Just kida, a quick review. We said that our Lord told the people of Israel, if you repent and offer true repentance as a congregation, I will reverse the effect of the locust on the short term, and I will also prevent the northern kingdom from coming and attacking you, and all these, all these kingdoms that came and attacked you will be judged. And God is saying that whatever they have done to you, I will also allow you to see that being done to them. This is the justice of God. And this is the principle that the Old Testament have seen. But God said, you know what, we're not going to stop here. Joel was able to see with the eye of prophecy that God will give his Holy Spirit to those who repent, to those who accept God. This is in the future, in the Pentecost day. And then also Joel was able to see not only the judgment of nation who attacked Israel, but he was able to see the judgment that will happen in the second coming. By the way, I, we said this multiple times, it's good to review. What God is saying here is Israel is a metaphor to the church. And the Joel is seeing so many things at the same time. He sees what's happening to Israel because of the locust. He sees what's going to happen to Israel because of the army. But he also sees what's going to happen in the second time. Okay? And he sees what are the judgment that's going to happen against the nations. Be careful, kida. there's one idea I want to explain before we go on. Sometimes God allows a lot of good things happens to evil people and evil nations. Why? Because even bad people or evil people have committed some good in their life. So God wants to reward them on earth. So when they go to heaven, when, sorry, when they get punished, they have received the rewards. If you guys remember in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, God told the, uh, the rich man, you have received many good things on earth. And that's why Saint, uh, David the prophet in one of the Psalms, he says, when he asked God, why do you allow the way of the evil to succeed? Later on he said, I know the answer. When I have seen their end, everything makes sense. So God does allow some of the nations to be strong and attack Israel at some time, okay, to reward them for the good they have done on earth. That's why the most difficult word I hear when God says, hey, you have received your reward. I don't want my reward on earth. I don't want that. I want it to be a heavenly reward. So now we're going to start from verse 9. Now God is talking. Joel is seeing the second coming. Why is the second coming important? Because when I start thinking about judgment day, everything else looks different. My life behaves different. When I, if I tell you tomorrow you're going to die, what are you going to do tonight? How is your life going to look different? One of the things that God is saying, look, what helps us to repent and what helps us 
to come closer to God is to think about Judgment Day. It's extremely important. In verse 9 it says, Proclaim this among the nation. He's talking to Israel. The repented Israel. The church. Proclaim this among the nation. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. What is God saying? He's saying, now the second coming is approaching. So what do you want us to do? He says, prepare for war. It's going to be a holy war. And remember last time we said the war that God wants us to get engaged in is in the valley of, the Sh of Jehoshaphat. What's the valley of the Jehoshaphat? It's basically when the Israelites were going to war against many nations and God told them, don't worry, just start praising God. And as they were praising God, those nations started fighting each other and they killed each other. So the role that God wants us to be mighty in, He wants us to be mighty in prayers. He's saying, call all the nations for judgment day. All those who attack the church. All those who try to deceive the children of God to do evil. Call them. By the way, th there's a little bit of an irony in this verse. Because usually when you go to war, you want to surprise your enemy. But God, I'm going to tell you later on, it's going to be clear why God is saying call them. Because he's not calling them for war. He's going to call them for judgment. He's calling these nations for what? For judgment. He's telling Israel, come, tell me all the wickedness that were against you, the church. And I will take care of it. Okay? Verse 10, he says, a beat your blow shares into swords and your brewing hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am strong. He's saying basically, turn all your farming tools into weapons of war. And by the way, historically, there at some point when Israel came from captivity, they did not have any weapons, so they had to turn some of their uh, farming tools into weapons so they can protect themselves. That's historically. But that's not what we're interesting, interested in. God is saying, turn in your harvesting or your, your farming tools into weapons of war. If you guys remember in the Bible, a lot of time God talks about the word of God as what? As a seed. And he says, you are a tree. And you should be fruitful. And people eat from that tree. He's almost saying that all the tools that I have used all your life to nourish you. Through the scripture, through the fathers. They will automatically prepare you to become a warrior against the devil. Our main job in life are two things. Become farmers. To learn from the word of God. And to fight the devil and the evil. So there's a historical implication, but there's also there's what a spiritual one. The best one of the best verses that I like in this verse we're going to spend some time on, which says, Let the weak say I'm strong. Let the weak say 
I'm strong. One of the things, this verse can be understood in so many different ways. The obvious way is a lot of times when I see myself, I see myself as useless, I'm weak, I can't do anything. But God said, as a repented Israel, all what you have to do to be victorious is to pray and praise. You don't have to be a warrior. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be strong in the worldly sense. All what you have to do is to pray and praise in the valley of the Jehoshaphat. You might not have a lot of verses memorized. You might not know a lot of Alhan. You might not feel you're strong. But God said, if you have the right desires, you're walking with me. And I'm going to do miracles through you. But there's another idea that I want to keep in our mind. I feel a lot of times we belittle our prayers. We feel our prayers are not effective. And people think when they pray, nothing will change. We cannot belittle our prayers. We can't. God said, let the weak say, I am a hero. In one of the Arabic translations. Sometimes we belittle what we have received from God. You know, for example, that God has given you a spirit that could tell you that this, is from, this, this teaching is from God. This teaching is not from God. This is right. This is wrong. Even when you try to argue, try to find reasons, all that stuff, it's clear inside your heart what is right, what's wrong. But then you act as if this is what's inside you is not the voice of God. You act like this is just a, a topic of intellectual discussion. God is saying, let the weak say, I am strong. Say, I have received. God said, know this, when you pray, you receive. Why do you walk around as somebody who is an orphan, who is weak, who is beaten by the world? Do not belittle your prayer. Do not belittle what you have learned from the church. Do not belittle the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. These are your strength. These are my strength. And they are not gonna, they're not going to help us. Okay? When he says, let the weak say I'm strong, you can also take it in another way. It means that the children of God do not get old or tired or lazy or sick. What do I mean by that? You'll find somebody who is old in age, but because he's a child of God, God renews his spirit. And he's active and he's walking and he's serving. One of the worst things is that when I keep telling myself all the negative feelings, I am useless, I am this, I am that, in a way that's a form of pride. Let the weak say, I am strong. 
Don't let anybody look down upon your age. Just because you're young, you cannot speak the truth. Just because you're young, people can have the authority over you, even though you can speak what's right. We have seen this in the story of Daniel and Susanna. A young man like Daniel was able to speak the truth. Sometime we might feel intimidated, but God is saying, let the weak say, I'm strong. Jean Cassien says something so beautiful. He says, You see then, the Lord's battles can be fought only by the suffering and the weak. Indeed, certainly, fixed in, the, in this weakness, our gospel centurion said with confidence, When I am weak, then I am strong. And again, strength is perfected in weakness. So what is Jean Cassien saying? He's saying that actually the whole Christian gospel teaching it's actually this, is that when I am weak, when I am suffering, I am strong in God. Our Lord said through many, the book of Acts said, through many tribulation we shall enter the kingdom of God. So I look at my suffering, this is my source of strength. Keep that in mind, because my weakness could turn into strength. I have seen many people, for example, who could not read and write. And then they would spend all their life standing in front of God crying and telling God, we cannot read and write, can you please help me raise my children? And you will see God doing miracles with them. You will see a, a mother who's sick and she prays constantly for her children and God does miracle with them. When I am weak, I am strong. That's the, what God is saying. He's saying, you're no longer going to operate by the worldly standard. He says, assemble and come all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. And basically what God is saying, is saying, call all the nation, let them fulfill their plans. The nation are coming to the valley of the Jehoshaphat, they're coming to fight. God is saying the world still has some plans that has to be completed before the second judgment. And God is saying, tell them to come, finish all what they have to do. Tell them come, they, have to, they come finish all what they have to do. Let the nation be wakened and come up to the valley of the Jehoshaphat. He's saying it again. For I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now this verse becomes clear. So God is saying, bring all the nations, bring them up. Let them come. Let them fulfill their plans. Let them fulfill all their sin. Let them fulfill all what they want. Let me give them the good things they want so they have received the rewards. But when they come to the valley of the Jehoshaphat, what is God is saying? He says, I will be where? Sitting on my judgment seat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nation. If you guys remember in the valley of the Jehoshaphat, before Israel arrived, the nations killed each other. 
And God told them to sing the second hose. Just give thanks to the Lord for his mercy and do it forever. Can you imagine? This is what God wants you to do. He says, let the, let the world do, do, do its thing. Let the evil does its thing. I want you to pray. I'll tell you guys something that could have touched me. I was speaking to somebody the other day, a holy person, and then they told me something that touched me. They said, they as uh, the person that specifically, they're going through a lot of health issues. And there are people who consecrated the life to God. They told me, I have never felt that I'm offering a sacrifice to God. I've only hope that I am only offering a life of thanksgiving to God. This person is saying that all the suffering and all the pain in my life, it's not an offering I'm giving to God. She's telling me, all my life, I wish I could offer enough thanksgiving to him. People who are warriors in their spiritual relationship with God are people who are warriors in thanking God. And I want to tell you guys something. We all thank God, but we don't thank him enough. And we don't understand all the things that we need to thank him for. I was actually praying with somebody, a priest, the other day. And one of, one of his prayers touched me. He lifted up his heart and told God, God, thank you for every single positive thought you put into my head. I have never in my life thought about thanking God for all the positive thoughts he puts in my head. If I want to come to the judgment day with the church, I have to be somebody who understands that I have a lot to be thankful for. I'm praying the second host with the church and I'm coming and letting God do his work. And it's interesting because God is using a metaphor of war. But God is not fighting. He's judging. He's telling them, look, your action against each other will judge you. In the book of Revelation, you will see exactly the same thing. He said, and I saw in Revelation 20 from 11 to 13. It said, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their work, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his work. Almost the sea is giving judgment to the people who go into Hades and the children of God are standing. The same image is being given in Joel, is given in Revelation. In verse 13, this is 
a beautiful verse. It says, put on the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. The sickle is like a knife they cut with the harvest. Come, go down, for the wine press is full, and the vets overflow, for their wickedness is great. God is saying, look, right now, the judgment of these nations have filled to the point of the wrath of God. God waits, 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 waits patiently. And sometimes we say, oh Lord, why are you allow all this evil to happen? God is waiting. Until the containers, the vets are overflowing. And God, by the way, here is the irony. God is using the same tools of harvest to talk about what the evil harvest. They have sown so much evil and now it's time what for God to interfere. From verse 14 to verse 17, he's going to talk about the signs of the last day. So far, he's talking all of this stuff is preparation to the last day. What's going to happen the last day? Look at verse 14. He says what? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Reminds you of Revelation from all nations, from all tribes. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Joel is seeing the judgment. When you come to the valley of decision, there is no more opportunity for salvation. This is the final judgment. And now you will see as you go, before we were preparing for the day of the Lord, so he was using the metaphor of war, because there is still war between evil and good. Now we are going to see the metaphor of war disappearing. And now he's talking clearly about the judgment. Do you, guys, do you guys follow what we went through this last few verses? He's saying, judgment will be upon the nation. Prepare for war. Prepare for battle. Call the nation. Do this. Do this. This is all the days leading up to final judgment. There's still war. There's still evil. But I want you to pray. I want you to praise. Now from verse 14 to 17, he's talking about the final signs of the Lord's day. The sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. This is the final act of God in human history. We as Christians, we're not waiting for any more salvific work. We're not waiting more of any work of salvation except the second coming. We're not waiting for another prophet. We're not waiting for Christ coming again to live on a thousand years. We're, we're waiting for the second coming. You will see this in Revelation 8:12. The fourth angel sounded, and the third of the sun was struck. When the third, uh, and when the third sounded, the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. This is happening in Revelation. The signs of the last days: the stars will go dark, the sun will go dark. You'll find it in Joel, you'll find it in Revelation. And by the way, this is significant because Joel is telling people repent so God can reverse the locusts and he can be protected. But all of a sudden, God is showing him things way beyond anything else. That's why the scripture is relevant to me and you today. Because we're not only talking about a spiritual war, we're talking about also the second judgment. Most of the things that John have seen in the book of Revelation, 
is already in Daniel, is already in Isaiah, is already in the minor prophets. And this, if you have witnesses of the same events, and there's thousands of years apart from each other, does this give us some sort of credibility and everybody explain it from a different point of view? Verse 16, And the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake. But the Lord will be shelter for his people and strength of the children of Israel. Obviously, this, the signs of the second coming are so scary. Everybody's worried. Everybody's running. But God is saying what? He's saying those who trust in God, God will be their shelter. God will be shelter. I want to just tell you guys something. When he says the Lord will roar from Zion, we said before Zion represents the, not, not just the Israelites, the, the pious people in Israel. So what he's saying here, when he says God is roaring from Zion, it means that God will speak in the midst of his church. In the midst of, what, of his church. And the Christians are the church. You will see in Romans eleven seventeen, it says that we, the Christians, were crafted on the tree of Israel to become the new church. You will see it in eleven seventeen, Romans eleven seventeen said, and if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, the Gentiles, us, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. So God is saying that you have become the new church. You have become the new vine tree. So God is saying, if you are in the church, you're protected. God is sheltered to you. Not, remember, he's using the word Zion, not Jerusalem. Zion is always connected to the people who are pious. Whereas God is going to roar and speak and going to be sheltered to the people of God who are holy. The church of God. You will see this also in First Thessalonica 4.16. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of archangel, with a trumpet of, of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. God is coming from heaven, and God himself is shouting. Not an angel. God himself is shouting. Joel is saying he's roaring from Zion. Paul is saying God himself is shouting. This is the shout that they say the soldiers in the Roman time used to shout as a, as a shout of victory. So God is shouting a shout of victory. And if you continue reading what Paul is saying, he's saying those who are alive but are righteous will be taken up to meet our Lord on the clouds. The Lord shouts in Joel, roars in Zion, in a cloud between all the saints, all the righteous. And he shouts in the, in the Thessalonica. God is happy that his children will finally be with him. And they will finally enjoy him and the, and the injustice will end. When God himself shouts, 
God shouted three times. One of them on the cross, one of them in front of the tomb of Lazarus. Then you shall know, look verse 17, then you shall know, what do you want us to know? That I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. God is saying, in heaven you will know me and we will become married holy for each other. And no alien, by the way, in Jerusalem, God told them this in, in Zechariah 14, 21. He says, yes, every part in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifice shall come and take them and cook in them. And that day there shall no longer be Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. There's a promise that everything in Israel will only be, in Jerusalem, will only be holy for God. Finally, we will get to know him. Finally, we will not struggle with our thoughts anymore. We see him in our midst. Everything goes to him. And he's in us. That's why in Revelation it says, And now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and be their God beautiful what God wants for us is beautiful if I want to repent the scene of heaven makes me repent because in on earth nothing I could do nothing I could do that does not require sacrifice if I walk with God I will have to sacrifice if I walk with the world I have to sacrifice if I walk with God I have to sacrifice my my heavenly peace, my, sorry, if I walk with God, I have to sacrifice my physical lust, all the sins, all the things I want to do, eating as much as I want, having whatever thoughts I want, doing whatever I want. But, but, but if I walk with the world, I still have to sacrifice. I will sacrifice the heavenly peace, the heavenly joy. I will sacrifice all these things. From verse 18 till, the final, till 21, this is the final state. He's talking about heaven, describing heaven. He says, and it will come to pass that in that day, what day it is, the day we enter heaven, that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills will flow with milk, and all of the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water, a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, and the water, and wa and water the valley of the Achaeus. He says now, this is by the way, ex exact description that was given in the book of Revelation. But he's saying here now, there will be new wine. Not only sufficient, but abundance. There will be no more dryness in our spiritual life. There will be rivers and rivers of water of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
If you compare this with chapter 1, when God, they woke up in the morning, they have no wine, they have no figs, they have nothing, the animals are restless, everybody's worried. Saying the mountain itself, not the, not the field, mountains. The Holy Spirit will work in us so much that we can get to know God. Without dryness, without struggle, without worries. That's what's going to happen. This reminds me of Revelation. It says, and he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. One thing that I was reading in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke the other day, and one verse caught my eye. God, God is saying something interesting. He says, if you are not faithful on what I have entrusted you with, how can you be faithful of what's your own? And what God is saying, he's saying, look, imagine, imagine if you work for me. And I tell you, look, work for a few hours and I'll, I'll pay you. And God is saying, if you're not faithful in that work, how will you be faithful in the money that I will give you? God is saying, I have entrusted you in this life. In this life, we're stewards. We own nothing. Zero. God said, in heaven, you will be owners. You will be heirs. So if God says, if you're not faithful in now, how would you be faithful in what is yours? If you're not faithful working in your job, when you take the money, you're going to waste the money. Because you don't have the right character to make you know how to use your money correctly. St. Jerome also connects this verse with St. Mary. He said, Mary is a garden enclosed, a fountain sealed. And from the fa that fountain flows, according to Joel, the river that waters the tournament bed either of cords or of thorns, the cords, those of sins by which we are uh, before time bound, and the thorns those would choke the seed the good man of the house had sown. He's saying that all of us almost will become like St. Mary. And all these fountains of water will come and get rid of all the sins and all the things that choke us throughout our life. Verse 19, he says, Egypt shall be desolation. Adam, a desolate wilderness, because of violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. Egypt represents idol worship and lack of faith. It's a rich country, and it always represents evil. Adam were people who challenged the children of God. So God is saying, all evil will be nothing. All the blood that was shed, the blood of Christ, the blood of the saints, will not be gone waste. And he says this in Revelation. He says, but the cowardly, the unbeliever, the abominable, the murderer, the sexual immoral, the sorcerer, the adulterous, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But Judah shall abide forever. 
eternity and Jerusalem from generation to generation. The knowledge of God, knowing God, is eternal life. And this is what John said in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our life in heaven is to simply know God. That's it. And it takes time. Imagine kid, uh, when two people are dating and they're trying to get to know each other. They're so interested in talking to each other. And that dating period or the hours they spend talking, they enjoy it so much. This is the kingdom. I am getting to know God. I am getting to know Him. For I will acquit them of the guilt of the bloodshed whom I had not acquitted for the Lord dwells in Zion. See what he's saying here? He's saying, look, earlier he said, the nations, let them finish their work. Let the nation get what they want. Because the reward will be received. My children, however, remember there are two things. The evil people have committed some goods and God would allow them to commit their sinfulness so they get the fullness of their punishment according to God's just justice. Here he's saying his own children have also committed sins. But God is saying, I will acquit them of the guilt of the bloodshed, whom I have not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. If, you, if, we, have, if we all our life have, any, have, have had any sins that we're struggling with, God himself will, what, will release all these things from us. No more sins. And no more judgment against us and no more fear and no more anxiety just looking at heaven can help us to repent so much because the beautiful thing is I could get a glimpse of from, from heaven today I could see it today I could enjoy it now and that's why the image of the second judgment and heaven is beautiful. Because God wants you to know. You, 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 can, you can see some of this now. So just gonna, to quickly summarize before we uh, pray. Now we concluded the book of Joel. Which is a, a book about how God is asking people to repent. And we said that this book, we look at it at different four levels. Number one, there was a plague that's happening, like the plague we're facing, we're, like the pandemic we're facing today. And God is saying, if you don't repent, short term, there is a long term punishment. But this is related to Israel. But for us, we see it from a spiritual warfare. And Joel himself doesn't only see what's happening today, he sees something called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is from the coming of Christ all the way until the second coming. He saw the pouring of the Holy Spirit upon people. Joel saw what we have today. And he said, your, your children shall see visions and see dreams. And then he also said that in this time, and the, the second time, as the second coming comes, let the weak say, I'm a hero. Your main job as a weak person in a world full of evil and power 
is to be a hero of prayer and hero of thanksgiving. And then you will seek the, the destruction of these nations in the, in the, in the valley of Dajjahushafat and we will be taken up to heaven with God for eternity. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. God willing, next week, we will, uh, we will study, the, we'll study the book of Psalms. We're not going to go through the 150 Psalms. What most likely going to do, we will pick few few Psalms. And maybe between, between every book, we can study a couple of Psalms. But I will try to pick some Psalms that we pray often. So at least we kind of have an idea. But next week will be introduction to the book of Psalms because it's important for us to know all the different kind of Psalms. And then most likely we will do Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 is unique. We pray it in the morning hour. And then the week after we'll pick different Psalms as we go along. We'll have Kedah Ilaria and Tony lead us.